0: Well, we've traveled through uh, the Sermon on the Mount and hopefully you've seen a couple of things uh, appear. Um, These teachings of Christ are either a spotlight or they are a searchlight. For the believer, it's a spotlight shining very brightly on a very dark path and that with great precision or These words that we've looked at so far in the Sermon on the Mount are a searchlight on a police cruiser. Criminals can't run, according to Matthew 5. In chapter 5 was Jesus' treatment of the law, pressing it upon the hearts of his hearers. He ended that section at the highest point on the mountain of righteousness by telling us that we we had to be as perfect as God. And I hope that you were able to conclude that with yourself, this is impossible, completely impossible. For the Jews in Christ's day, they prided themselves on how well they knew the Scripture. One rabbi around this time found himself short a scroll at a synagogue, and so he wrote the entire book of Esther down from memory. Um, In their schools, they used all kinds of mnemonic devices in order to, uh, to, to recall Scripture. The very thing they adored only left them condemned. And Jesus put it like this in John 5, 39-40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The point of the law was to lead them to Christ, and they were missing him. And he was in front of their face. The other thing that the Jews prided themselves on was their good deeds. Last week, John began chapter 6, where Jesus warns people of the danger of activities. In particular, activities that are motivated by what other people will think. So Jesus pointed out that giving, praying, and fasting all need to be done in secret. But for the Jews in Christ's day, true spirituality involved a whole lot of keeping up with the Joneses. If you had money, it's best to give. When everyone is looking, if you're praying, pray loudly and eloquently so others can be impressed. And if you're fasting, look like a zombie. So everyone knows just how much you're suffering in order to be spiritual. Jesus smashes all these people-driven activities that are only meant for an audience of one. In the first half of Matthew 6, Jesus shows us how we can take very spiritual, godly behaviors, such as giving, praying, and fasting, and ruin them with carnality and self-promotion. He counters in each of these sections by reminding us of the presence of the Father. Three times he says, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me pause for a minute and just... When we get through chapter five, with, with those towers that we talked about at the, be, the beginning and end of those chapter of that chapter, you know, our hearts—not just our behavior—our hearts are condemned. Uh, and there's no way that we can't not commit adultery. There's no way we can't not be murderers. We are those things, and I think that in our minds we. Maybe we see that well, you know what i'm 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 a condemned person on that level, but you know, I still try to do good works, I still try to be a good person, so when he launches into chapter six, he warns us of doing our good deeds before people, then all of a sudden as as we get along in chapter six, we realize well. Even the good works that we think are really great, <laughs> they're really not that great. Because we're consumed with what people think. So as we come to Matthew six nineteen through 34, the groundwork has been laid in all the verses prior. So let me summarize that with two thoughts. Number one, God is more important than people. I know that sounds obvious, doesn't it? I mean, we're at church. Obviously, God is more important than people. Um, But, I'll be the first to admit, there are some Sunday mornings when I stand in my closet and I kind of freak out that I'd wear the same shirt two weeks in a row. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh no, what are what are people gonna? Are, are they gonna think that I'm like dirt poor and and uh, you know I've uh, it, I, I, do I do I button this? Rod stands in his closet. He wants to button this button. Okay, And I stand in my closet, going, I don't like this button. But if I unbutton that, I'm gonna show some undershirt, and I don't want anybody to stumble. Right. So, but but think about this. How often do we 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 say, we say yes, God is more important than people, and yet we are driven, driven by, consumed by what somebody else is going to think. Secondly, what we believe about God. Specifically regarding His presence, multiple times, He sees in secret, Jesus says. So His presence and His appraisal, His appraisal is, multiple times, He will reward you in secret. Jesus says, if you want the praise of men, you can have it. Go ahead, take it. That's all you get. By the way, the praise of men lasts about as long as the attention span of a two-month-old baby. It's not very long. Thank you. I've had a few in my house. Notice with me, Matthew six 19. Let's read through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. Here Jesus commands heavenly hoarding. Or as we heard it more eloquently this summer by Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Jesus is exposing how silly it is to store up possessions here on earth. And it sounds absurd to say Uh, I'm hoping that all of my current possessions will be eaten by rust or by bugs. Or I want to bless the moths by saving all of this clothing for them. Or I hope that someday my families will get into my shoe collection and use the left shoe for a home and the right shoe for a toilet. sick, isn't it? How easy was it? Back then, to hoard wages and then have your neighbor figure out where your hiding place was at. And today we think that we're way more advanced than that, right? So we keep all of our riches in the bank nice and secure. That, of course, is as long as there's no power outage. Stop and think about it. Your riches depend on the maintenance team at the power grid. Somebody has a bad day and you can't access anything that belongs to you. there is a place our resources can go where it will remain unscathed for all eternity. But it can't be here. The only way to secure our possessions is to to let go of them in this life. If our heart is where our treasure is, then how much do we treasure heaven itself? The problem that we have is that we've actually placed confidence and security in the temporal things of this life. Isn't that the reason why we fear death so much? We strain to stay alive and do as many things to prevent dying as we possibly can. But our perspective would change drastically if our thirst for heaven was greater than our thirst for temporary comfort. John Calvin puts it like this. He says, if we were honestly and firmly convinced that our happiness is in heaven, it would be easy for us to trample upon the world to despise earthly blessings by the deceitful attractions of what of which the greater part of men are fascinated. Isn't that true? Look around us. In his commentary on this passage, he points his readers to Colossians 3, and I'm going to add verses 2 through 4 to that. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. I mean, imagine putting everything that matters to you in a big pile in your front yard. Clothing. I mean, I got shirts. I'm full of a confession today. I've got a shirt that's probably 25, 26 years old. And it wasn't decent for wearing probably 15 years ago. And I cut the sleeves off. It made an undershirt. And it's still going. And it was a hand-me-down, by the way. How about quilts? I, I was talking to my one of my managers this week, and he said uh, several years ago they had a parrot. Him and his wife, and they put a uh, the, this parrot would just not be quiet. So they threw he grabbed a quilt and threw it over the top of the parrot cage. Which, I mean, that's what you do with a bird, right? It quieted down. The next morning, there wasn't hardly anything left at the other side of that quilt. That parrot had shredded it. His wife was very upset. You know why? Because that quilt, her mom made her when she was a kid. Guess where it went? In the garbage. Books. man. I'll, again, first to admit, I got books I haven't read for a long time. And I maybe didn't even finish it. But I got to keep it. It's my book. Right, Faith? got some books. Kids, I'm not gonna leave you out. Stuffed animals? Got stuffed animals? Oh, we're attached, aren't we? I mean I can't take my kids through the toy aisle. That is that by itself is sinful, okay? You know, because they get all these they 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 get dazzled by all the the stuff and they see this stuffed animal. I gotta have the stuffed animal. I want to sleep with the stuffed animal and how long does it last? And yet we attach great value to it. Cars. Do you know people have... There, there are people that have cars they don't drive. They have weekend cars. Summer cars. What is that? I don't know. Well, put it in the pile. How about computers? We have sentimental... Sentiment, I mean, we spend hours staring at these things, and then when they start to break, it breaks our heart. I mean, we go through a grieving process over computers. Maybe it's your house. We invest so much in the place where we dwell jewelry from grandma my grandma is in the nursing home I've mentioned that Um, when um, you guys remember Avon Avon calling (laughs) my grandma answered that call every time she had a box with dozens of Avon rings the kind, with, you know, you, Avon lady can't show up and give you a ring that fits you just right. It's got the little springs in it, you know what I'm talking about? That that it's if it's too, you know, you can get your finger in there and it stays no matter what. We didn't have those. We, all the great-granddaughters got rings. And so, um, I don't know, how, what was a week or two after we got all those rings, I already had to cut one off of Michaela's finger because it was too tight. You know where it's at now? <laughs> in the trash. Anything that you feel some kind of pride or a deep sentimental attachment to, throw it in the pile. Now, in your mind's eye, climb onto the pile and sit at the top. In fact, imagine having to be strapped to the top of that pile. Now listen again to Christ. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. D.A. Carson commenting on this verse says, The point is that the things most highly treasured occupy the heart, the center of the personality, embracing mind, emotions, and will, and thus the most cherished treasure subtly but infallibly controls the whole person's direction and values. In other words, you are controlled by what You treasure. Nothing spoils in heaven. I'm going to one day open up my heavenly refrigerator and there's not going to be mold on the leftovers. All around us, every day, we're reminded of the decay and the death of this life. It will not be like that in the life to come. Notice verses 22 through 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And So here Christ reminds us that our eyes don't lie. The eyes are the headlights of the heart. The heart treasures what it will, and the eyes only shine upon those treasures. The tragedy that Christ highlights here is that it's possible to believe that you have light when you don't. Listen again to verse 23. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That is true in the physical sense, isn't it? If you're, if you're blind, you don't take light in. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Darkness becomes even greater darkness when the one in the dark actually thinks he sees. Remember the pile that we're strapped to? Imagine protesting to those who walk by you that even though you're strapped to these things, they really don't matter that much. It's what you say. And every passerby would laugh at your own assessment of the situation. Clearly, you can't get away from the things you treasure the most. We say we're loyal to Christ deep, deep down. But our interests, it seems, are divided. Or are they really divided? And let me tell you what you probably don't want to admit today your heart really isn't a divided heart, it's loyal, it has to be loyal. And we know that because of verse 24. Jesus says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So here he is not saying that you shouldn't serve two masters or commanding you to pick one master over another. What he is stating is a factual contrast. There are two masters. You must hate one and you must love one. You must be devoted to one and you must despise one. One master is God and the other master is your money, your stuff. And no one, according to Jesus, is exempt from this. No one, no one can serve two masters. And it goes on and says you cannot serve God and money. Now, if this isn't hard enough to swallow, take a gander at 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word anxious here in this passage can be translated as take thought or care or be careful. So look again at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, Take no thought about your life. Therefore, I tell you, take no care about your life. What does your life consist of? Do you find yourself constantly chasing after clothing, food, and drink? Birds and flowers don't sweat it out. No bird has an excess of supplies, yet you don't find them wringing their feathers in anxiousness over where the next meal is going to come from. Flowers simply lift their entire beings in worship of their Creator no matter what the quality of the soil is they're planted in. I hate weeds, but they sure testify, don't they? Their petals don't lap tap the ground impatiently waiting for the next rain to come. How much more important are we than grass? God takes enough care to feed the birds. Have you ever seen a skinny robin in the spring? I haven't. They need to have they need to have an open season on robins. They would eat. On one hand, Anxiety is to be dropped, and in its place, a seeking first of God's kingdom. Jesus isn't just giving an omission, stop doing that, but also a commission, go do that. Omit anxiety, commit the kingdom of God. Just like God and money, anxiety and kingdom don't go together. You cannot omit worry without prioritizing the kingdom, and you can't prioritize the kingdom and continue to worry father does have this under control right with this thought jesus pulls the needle and thread through the point that he's been making all chapter long the father knows the father knows he's present he's not he's not distantly related to you he knows that you need them all that's his appraisal of this So let me give some, some concluding thoughts here. First, I think that this passage demands that we, have, that we experience a crisis of belief. What it means to believe is never, ever defined biblically by lip service. It is always defined by what we do with what we're told. So do we really believe in eternal life? Are we going to live on after our death on this earth? We say yet, but yes, but the cushions of worldly comforts betray us. We are so padded in that we don't feel eternity. We're more concerned about quenching our momentary thirst than we are fostering a thirst for heaven. I mean, do you think about heaven every day? If you don't, what a tragedy. May I suggest that if you had less cushion, you would thirst for heaven more. There's no avoiding this question. What do you believe about God the Father? I believe that anxiety is a direct result of a failure to trust God. When anxiety is present, we are attempting to act independently of God. When we are worrying, we are spiting the presence and appraisal of the Father. We are telling Him that He may be good enough to save us for all eternity, but I'm pretty sure, Lord, You're not good enough to take care of my momentary needs. Secondly, this passage demands... A crisis in our priorities. Listen to the commands given in this text. Don't store up stuff in this life. Store up stuff in heaven. Stop worrying about food, drink, and clothing. Seek first God's kingdom. Uh, the word seek is used in 1 Corinthians 4.2 and it is translated required. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Do you require of yourself that the kingdom comes first in your life? And by that, I'm not saying, because we're, we're Americans and we love our list, we love our, our checklist, and we put at the top, kingdom of God. So we sit down in the morning and we read our Bible, we do a, a little devotional and we do a little prayer and we check it off our list and then we continue to worry about everything else the rest of the day. Have we prioritized the kingdom of God? Have, are we seeking first the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. What that means is not put kingdom at the top of the checklist. It means that the kingdom overarches everything else that we do. Thirdly, this passage demands a crisis in our perspective. In 1 Peter 1, 13-19, Peter says this, with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God didn't purchase you with the imperishable blood of Christ so that you could chase after the perishable things of this life. The blood of Christ demands a change of perspective. Life Here, for a believer, is an exile. It's not the life that matters. Your current home and your current property are not your promised land. Those are perishable. And all of it, one day, will end up in smoke. Lastly, this passage Demands a crisis in our salvation. Listen again closely to Jesus in verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Maybe our problem isn't just a matter of priority, but a matter of salvation. Jesus says to this horde of people sitting on the mountainside that people who don't know God worry about things in this life. Maybe we worry because we're not saved. For those of you that are here that are, that are saved, I know that this is a struggle. I woke up this morning at 4.30, 30. went to bed at 11. And at 5.30, after just laying there, knowing that I have no reason not to be asleep right now. I should be asleep. I should be asleep. You know what, Lord? I've got to preach today. I can't do that on five and a half hours of sleep. And then, as I'm sitting there thinking, the the words in my mind were, I'm worried, and then it hit me at 5.30, i got to preach on anxiety today. So I got out of bed. I thought, you know what? Lord if i get up and put two words together that make any sense all glory be to you cuz i'm way too tired to be up here doing this right now so it's all him and it's all for his glory let's pray listen to the words one of my favorite songs By Lauren Daigle. She says, God, I give you what I can today. These scattered ashes that I hid away, I lay it all at your feet. From the corners of my deepest shame, the empty places where I've worn your name, show me the love I say I believe. Help me to lay it down. O Lord, I lay it down. Oh let this be where I die, my Lord with thee, crucified, be lifted high, as my kingdoms fall, once and for all, once and for all. There is there is victory in my Savior's loss. The crimson flowing from the cross. Pour over me. Pour over me. Oh Lord, I lay it down. Oh Lord, I lay it down. Help me to lay it down. Oh Lord, I lay it down. Oh, let this be where I die my Lord with thee, crucified. May it be our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.